Well, one of the most difficult teachings of our Lord Jesus is found in our passages this morning. So thank you, Casey, for letting me preach this sermon. (laughs) John 6.60 says this, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The difficult teachings that we're going to embark on today mystified the crowd that Christ was talking to. It alarmed them as they got a glimpse of the real Jesus. It shocked them. And I must say, some of Christ's words are hard for us to swallow as well. So let's all open our Bibles to John 6, verses 51 through 66. John 6, verses 51 through 66. Where I've entitled this message, The Source of Life. We're going to look at four specific points. Point number one says Jesus is who he claims to be. Point number two says that we're going to understand the root of salvation. Point number three says that often self is at the end of our worship to Christ. And point number four says that we are called to live and abide in Christ Jesus. So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer and ask him to help us with this difficult teaching and embrace his word with open hearts. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We're so blessed to be able to come here and worship corporately, glorifying you in our hearts, Father. We ask that we not just glorify you here in the service, but that we glorify you every day, every minute of our lives. I ask, Father, that you open our ears, open our eyes so we can see you in all your glory, to to get more of a glimpse of who you are, the greatness of God and your son Christ Jesus. May that happen. May your spirit work in our hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, two weeks ago, now three weeks ago, Casey started this section in John 6 where Christ had a large crowd following him. And this was the same group that had been fed miraculously by him. And this group had followed Christ across the Sea of Galilee, and now they are ready to hear from Christ. This looks like a really awesome opportunity for Christ. I mean, he has this large amount of people that are ready to hear from him. Now he can really share the truth. He can really reveal himself, right? The question is, what will he say? How will he teach so many people who have traveled across land and sea To listen to him. I wonder if Christ will use some of the modern day approaches or techniques that are taught often in many churches or in many seminaries across the world. I mean, maybe Christ will try to be really relevant and hip. Speak the language of the culture, right? Or maybe Christ would try to entertain them. Maybe the disciples will put on a play. And, and the people, their interest will be piqued as their emotions are stirred. 
Or maybe Christ will preach a real positive message, something that will really boost their self-esteem, something that will really warm the cockles of their hearts, something that would make Joel Osteen really proud. Or maybe Christ would preach a sermon that would be practical for everyone, something that would really help engage everyone, including the unbeliever. Well, let's see what approach Christ takes. Let's look now in John 6, verse 51. And Jesus says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Wait a minute here, let's stop. Wait a minute, this doesn't sound like one of our modern day approaches. What is Christ doing? I mean, it doesn't sound like he's following any of the wisdom of our day. I mean, it says the Jews then disputed among themselves. Literally, they started fighting or quarreling about what Christ was actually saying. Can you imagine? While Christ was still preaching, they're arguing amongst themselves about what he is teaching them. The question is, what will Christ do now? Will he smooth over the situation and say some niceties? Or will he possibly do a miracle to appease the crowd? Or will he just stop and begin to thank them for traveling so far to hear him preach? Well, let's look at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that I came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Amen? We see that Christ does not back down. Christ does not do anything to appease the crowd. Christ only clarifies what he already started saying in the first place, which leads to point number one. Christ is who he claims to be. Point number one says that Christ is who he claims to be. Christ is showing the people where they find life. And it's not found in the Old Testament law or the prophets, but found in the person of Christ Jesus. Amen? So what was the outcome of Christ's message? How did the people respond to finding out who Christ really was? Well, let's look at verse 60. What does it say? When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? That's their response. And the words here for hard saying sounds like the crowd didn't understand Jesus' teaching. But that is not the case at all because it means literally hard to tolerate, hard to swallow. It would be like trying to get a pill down and you're drinking a bunch of water to try to get it down. It's hard to get down. 
Which means just the opposite of them misunderstanding. They finally started understanding what Christ was saying. Which that is what caused the problem. They followed Christ when they weren't clear on what he was teaching. But now that they understood him, it became hard for them to swallow. It became hard for them to tolerate. So let's look back at verse 52 to show why when the crowd was actually confused, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then again, in verses 53 through 58, Christ clarifies to the crowd the misunderstanding by what it meant to eat his body and drink his blood. So the people had a hard time again swallowing the claims that Christ was saying about himself. But what was it that gave the crowd such heartburn? What did Christ claim about himself that caused such a problem with the crowd? Well, the first claim the crowd had a hard time swallowing was that Christ taught that he was the only source of life. The first claim Christ taught that he was the only source of life. Let's look back to John 6, 53 through 55, where he explains this. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is too drink. So Christ compares himself to real food that must be lived off of. Christ says, I am the only source that gives true life. If you feed on me, you will have eternal life. But if you don't turn to me, then you will eternally be condemned. You will die spiritually. This is similar to what he says in John 3.18. Where it says this, whoever believes in him, that means believes in Christ, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Jesus says there is no life outside of him. Literally, we are dead spiritually until we turn to Christ. That's why Ephesians 2 tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins before we followed Christ. The crowd was probably thinking as as he was saying this, news flash Jesus, we are the chosen people of Israel. What are you talking about? We don't have life. We definitely have life. We We have the Old Testament. We're the chosen people of God. They prided themselves on their heritage, on their own merit, on their ability to keep the Old Testament law. I wonder... If any of us struggle with the idea that Christ is clearly the only way to salvation. I wonder if we struggle with the idea that we aren't saved on our own good works or our own merit, but on Christ alone, in faith alone. But this leads to the second claim that the crowd had a hard time swallowing was that Christ taught that he was both deity and savior. The second claim that Christ taught was that he was both deity and savior. Let's look back to verse 56 in John 6. 
And it says this, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So we see the parallelism here between the relationship of Christ and the Father God and Christ's relationship with him and his children as Savior. The crowd would have had a hard time swallowing this, hard time tolerating such claims. I mean, this would have been considered blasphemy in the Old Testament. Such a status to say that you're equal with the Father? Let me ask us this morning, do we see the love Christ has for his children? That he abides with us, that he is in an intimate, we're in intimate fellowship with him. Let me ask us this, how often do we praise God? For his love and care for us. Well, the third claim the crowd had a hard time swallowing was that Christ taught that he was greater than Moses. The third claim Christ taught that he was greater than Moses. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live Forever. So Christ reminds them of the Exodus where God sent Moses to free them from Egyptian captivity, slavery. And when they were hungry, God fed them, right? He gave them bread that nourished their physical body, but then it says they all died, right? And Christ adds that if you eat off me, the bread that I'm offering you is life. And if you feed on me, you will never die. So Christ is saying in so many words that what he offers is better than what they received in the wilderness. The crowd would have concluded rightly that Jesus is saying that he is greater than Moses. And for us to imagine that, this would be like trying to tell a conservative that Bernie Sanders will be a better free market capitalist than Ronald Reagan. That's absurd, right? Moses was an Old Testament hero. And Jesus, on the other hand, was thought of as an average Jewish man. As the crowd mentioned earlier, if we look back to verse 42, they say this about Jesus. Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? The crowd didn't have a real high view of Jesus. They didn't recognize who he was. They didn't consider him to be Messiah. They didn't believe his claims. They wouldn't swallow what he was saying about himself. So the next question is, why didn't the crowds believe that he was from God? That he was the son of God who offered them eternal life. Why didn't they believe? I mean, Christ had just fed them only a few days ago in the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, right? With a few fish and loaves. And if we multiply all the, the people, they're not just the men, they would suggest that there was probably more like ten to 20,000 people Christ fed. You would have thought that would have made some lasting impression on them, Right? But let's read carefully to see the reason the crowd didn't believe Jesus. Let's look down to John 6, 63. John 6, 63. You have to follow me here on this one. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. 
So the first thing Christ says is that the Spirit gives life, eternal life, and while the flesh can't do anything at all. This is similar to what Jesus told Nicodemus back in John 3, 6, when he said this, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That means someone who is in the flesh can only produce more flesh, right? While the Holy Spirit produces the Spirit. But Scripture goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural person or the person without the Holy Spirit, that's what it means when it says natural person, the person without the Holy Spirit does not accept the things of the Spirit for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, the person who is without the Holy Spirit can't understand the things of God, it says. That's why we can't woo people to Christ by evidence, right? That doesn't cause them to follow Christ. This would include, though, seeing Christ as Messiah. The crowd couldn't see Christ as Messiah in the flesh. They wouldn't see Christ as Lord and Savior. And the reason a person can't come to Christ on their own without the help of the Holy Spirit is because Scripture teaches that we are sinful, that we are corrupt from head to toe naturally. This is known as total depravity. It means that every part of us, every faculty of us is corrupted by sin before we came to Christ. Sinning to the unbeliever is as natural as breathing for us. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those that have their minds set on the flesh is again talking about the unbeliever, someone without the Holy Spirit. And Paul says they can't please God. That means they cannot follow God and choose God on their own. And it's also, it's not saying, though, that a person can't do something nice or serve in some capacity. It means that they don't serve or help someone for God's glory, right? They're rebelling against God. They're living for their flesh. So they're not doing nice things for people for God's glory. There's other motives going on for what they do. So let's do a quick recap, a summary why the crowd didn't believe in Christ from what we just said, and then we'll move forward. We mentioned that the Holy Spirit has to open their eyes, and the reason God has to intercede is because humanity is sinful from birth, the Scriptures teach, and sin continues to deceive the unbeliever. So the Holy Spirit has to intervene so they can actually turn to Christ. But let's move on in our verses, in verse 63, the second half, where Jesus says this, The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So the question is, why didn't they believe? For one, we know the Holy Spirit hadn't opened their eyes, but also Christ adds to this by saying in verse 65, Jesus said this, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So Jesus says they don't believe in verse 64, and he tells them why in verse 65. He tells them and says, and he doesn't say, well, you're just too evil. 
Or you're just not listening to what I'm teaching. Or, you know, you, you just can't hear me. He doesn't say that. No, he says, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Which leads to point number two. Salvation is a work of God. Point number two says that salvation is a work of God. And at the same time, though, I would say we do believe from Scripture that we do make a real decision. We do make a conscious choice to follow Christ. But what we see is under our belief, under our choice, is God drawing us at the same time. We saw the same language earlier if we look back to John 6, 35 through 37. Go back a few verses and it says this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. Again, we see the crowd doesn't believe in verse 36, right? And Jesus tells us why they don't believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. And if we didn't get it the second time, we can go to John 6, 43 and 44. Listen to this again. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Again, he already knew that they were unfaithful, that they weren't following him, and they grumbled about it. And he says again in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So he repeats it again three times. Jesus responds to their grumbling, their unbelief. These verses point to the sovereignty of God and the work of salvation. There is much debate on how this all plays out exactly, but there is no reason to make this a divisive issue regardless of where we stand on how someone is saved. There's been godly people on both sides on this debate, but I have to preach what it plainly seems to say. Um, The question is, have we considered how God's sovereignty played a role in our salvation? Have we considered how involved God has been, not just in salvation, but in every area of our life as believers? Do we recognize that God is at work in our daily life when we are at home or when we are stuck in a traffic jam or when we are struggling in a trial of some sort? God is in the midst of our daily lives, in the details of our life. Amen? So what was the outcome from these piercing words of Christ? How did the the crowd react to this? Let's go to John 6, 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. We see the crowd understood Christ's message and rejected it. They rejected Christ and his claims. In our day, many pastors would call Christ a failure. He lost most of his followers. The reality of it is Christ knew they weren't his in the first place. Christ wasn't about collecting people, trying to build numbers. If anything, he weeded out the false from the genuine. 
Christ preached to glorify the Father, and he knew when he preached the truth, God would draw his children, draw the faithful to Christ, and the shallow follower would eventually lose interest or may get offended by what Christ was saying. I'm afraid we can be like most pastors today. Most churches where we are controlled more by the fear of man than the fear of God. Many of us are more worried about what people think of us than what God thinks about us. We tremble over what others may think about us instead of trembling over the fact that a holy God who hates sin and knows every wicked thought or action about us sees everything we're doing. Many of us aren't sharing God's word with others because we are scared that we will be rejected. If I talk about Christ, people will think I'm an extremist. If I talk about Christ, people are going to think I'm a fanatic. And it is true. Many will reject us, as they did our Lord. Many will think we are fanatics, as they did our Lord. But we are called, church, to be faithful, not popular. We are called to love people, not please them. We are called to glorify God, not glorify ourselves by having everyone say good things about us. So the superficial disciples left him. They walked away. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. I say superficial because we can remember back in John 6.26, which tells us that they followed Christ because he fed them. So they followed Christ to get a free meal. They followed him over land and sea to get their bellies filled. I don't know about you, but I think these people are pretty ridiculous, pretty sinful, pretty selfish. I mean, they followed Christ for what they could get from him. Can you believe that? Who does that? Who would follow Christ for their own self-centered benefit, for their own selfish gain? Who would do something like that? I think most of you already know where I'm going with this one. You guys are catching on. I hate to admit it, but I think I can relate. Even in Christ, we often have very wrong motives in worshiping Christ. I'm afraid I can think of a time or two or a hundred or a thousand where I worshiped or followed Christ for my own selfish reasoning. If I follow Christ, I remember this in basketball, I mean, in high school, if I followed Christ more, maybe you'd let us win this championship tomorrow. Or if I follow, if I fast, maybe Christ will heal my sickness. Or if I read the Bible more, maybe God will give me a better job. Or if I pray more, God will give me a spouse. Or if I'm more obedient, then he'll change my spouse. Or maybe if I go to church more, he'll help me with my addictions. There's a lot of I's and me's in this list. As if we can bargain with God, church. He graciously pierces through our sinful motives and lovingly confronts and convicts us of our sinfulness. When we worship Christ because we expect something in return, who are we really worshiping Him for? When I turn to Christ because I want Him to fix something in my life, who is my obedience really for? Point number three says this, often self is at the end of our worship to Christ. Point number three says, often self 
is at the end of our worship to Christ. A.W. Tozer said this, Among the plastic saints of our times, Jesus has to do all the dying, and all we want to hear is another sermon on Him dying. Brothers and sisters, Christ calls us to follow Him to the cross and die to ourselves, die to our selfishness. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Luke 9, 23 and 24. Are we dying to self? Dying to self means we are growing in the fruit of the Spirit, right? We're growing in those fruit, in that fruit. And it is fruit of the Spirit, not fruits. So when we are walking in Christ, we mature in all the fruit of the Spirit. Are we becoming more self-controlled, learning to deny our passions of the flesh? Are we learning to love, growing in our love for God and others? What about humility? Are we learning to lift up others above ourselves? A humble person does not think much about themselves because they're so focused on loving and serving other people. But we can't produce the fruit of the Spirit on our own, right? It is, again, the Holy Spirit that produces this fruit within us. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I used to read this passage to motivate myself to live more holy, to be more serious in my walk, to live more faithful to Christ. It was sort of like my eye of the tiger verse. This verse would pump me up to work harder, to try harder, to fight for Christ because I had to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. It was up to me, I thought. The problem is, I forgot to read the next passage. The next passage that totally told me something else. Let's look at it here. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So verse 12 and 13, in other words, says work on your own salvation with fear and trembling, but recognize it is God who's doing the work in you. Amen? If we are in Christ, he is working in us and through us. That means we can't take credit for the change he is doing in us. It is God who gets all the glory. Every area of our life is lived in Christ, for Christ, to Christ, for the glory of God. Amen? And this is not something we produce within ourselves. But it is Christ. It is the Holy Spirit working itself out of us. Are we feeding on Christ this morning? Is Christ living in us? Jesus said in verse 56 of John 6, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Which leads to point number four. We feed on Christ as he lives inside of us. Point number four says we feed on Christ as he lives inside of us. We see that we are not working on our own then. Christ abides. He continues to work in us. He gives us the ability, the strength to actually live for Him. 
I hate to admit this in front of, in front of everybody, but I often crave sort of sinful delights. I really love ice cream. I really do love ice cream. Man, I, I really do like ice cream. Do we have any ice cream? That'd be great. But anyway, my point is, I wonder if we desire Christ the way we desire even our favorite desserts. Our desires for Christ is seen in our, how we love our spouse. Our desire for Christ is noticed in how we spend our spare time. Our desire for Christ is seen in the way that we train our children. Our desire for Christ is seen in the way I treat others, right? My desire for Christ comes from Christ working in me and through me. He gets all the glory. In conclusion... In conclusion, the crowd walked away from Christ. His teachings were too hard for them to swallow. It was too hard for them to tolerate. What about us this morning? Are we drawn by the words of Christ or are we repelled by them? Are we drawn to be obedient to Scripture or do we question everything in the Word of God? Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Are you being drawn by the Holy Spirit this morning? As it is God who brings conviction and opens our eyes. If your eyes are being opened to who Christ is, I would encourage you not to hesitate or wait around to respond to the Lord's calling. Do not put it off, but submit to Christ. Repent for the years of living for self and turn to Christ in faith. Brothers and sisters, when we follow Christ, it is a hard road. I'm not going to say it's not. But it is a road that leads to true freedom. A road that leads to real forgiveness and boundless grace. Following Christ is a road that leads to God and the Holy Spirit indwelling us, living inside of us. It is a road that ultimately leads to sweet fellowship with the Trinity. May we be a people who feed on Christ as he abides in us. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we have just shared some hard words that were really hard for the hearers of the day to hear. And Father, I think sometimes these same words are hard for us to hear as well. Help us to be faithful to your word. Not faithful to what we've been raised in, but faithful to your word and your word alone. Help us to be willing to walk, to glorify you instead of ourselves, Father. Help us to be a people who are full of love towards this world that is getting more anti-Christian. Help us to live a life of love, but be willing to stand on truth and not fear man, but fear you so much more. Thank you for what you're doing here and doing across the world for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.